I've just put my pocket telephone into aeroplane mode. He's just put his pocket telephone into aeroplane mode. This is the Religious Studies Project. I'm Chris Cotter. He, with his pocket telephone, is... I'm David Robertson, and I'm using British slang today because I'm going to America tomorrow, and I'm a little excited. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Why are you going there? I'm doing fieldwork. Remember fieldwork, Chris? Mm, I've... Yes. 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 Um, you're still prob- You're still untangling the... The ramifications of the last time you did it. Yeah. It's been a few years for me and I'm doing some more and it's very exciting. Good. So look out, LA. Best of luck with that. There's um, a tiny dynamo coming to stir stuff up. Yeah. And, uh, you never know. You may end up in film. I imagine so. I'm going to be in Hollywood. <laughs> this week's interview, um, speaking of Hollywood. Uh. Is, hey? I don't really know how that works. Well, you know, Chris Silver is a man who's made for the big screen. The silver screen, if you will. <laughs> there we go. That was excellent. Um, and he's been speaking with um, Chris Black. Um, so we've got Chris with a C and Chris with a K speaking about atheism, new religious movements, and cultural tension. Take it away, folks. How many kinds of atheisms are there? Are there different kinds of atheists? Different kinds of atheism? And what's the deal between new religious movements, non-religious belief, and cultural tension? Dr. Chris Silver joins me today, and welcome, Chris. Thank you. We're here to talk about your wonderful previous work and your current work in atheism and new religious movements. Uh, Why don't we just start with visiting briefly your previous work on the six different types of atheism. Sure. Well, and I should also, I should also, sorry, I should also mention, um, uh, I got my start as one of the assistant editors of the Religious Studies Project. Oh, that's right. Back that's in right. Like 2011, 2012. So it's strange to be on the other on the, side uh, of the In the other chair. Yeah, it's really <laughs> weird. So hopefully I don't embarrass, uh, Chris, David, and Tommy. So here it goes, guys. I'll try. <laughs> um, yeah, so a number of years ago, uh, Tommy Coleman and I, um, and Tommy Coleman's now at Coventry University in the UK, uh, and former both undergrad and graduate student of mine, um, I was in the process of working on uh, a doctorate degree in learning and leadership from the University of Pennsylvania, Chattanooga, mm-hmm. and was really, really interested in, like, the sort of fallacy, particularly psychology, but even wider sociology and some of the others had about atheism agnosticism. Mm. So, for example, you see a lot of surveys, and you have all the you know when people would identify uh, you know their beliefs or the religious associations, those in spiritual associations, mm-hmm. you know you'd always see atheism, agnosticism. You know, sometimes you see none, n o n e. Right. Sorry. Uh, or unaffiliated, mm-hmm. but but you know, with that community growing, and, and you know, we've seen this in few form in our association. That's just growing demographic. Yes, yes, right. and so it just bothered me because, um, I, you know, I I thought there was more complexity there, and mm-hmm. I was afraid that by us collapsing all that variability into a nominal variable, we were missing some richness that mm-hmm. needed to be captured. But you know. Um, you know, through humble inquiry, I wasn't exactly sure what was going to be the most efficient way to do that. So I both 
say that I was blessed to do this study, and I'm also I also apologize profusely because you know when you're the first person to try to do something like that, you just don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so I don't I don't ever claim that it has predictive power, although we have gotten a lot of anecdotal feedback from making saying hostage studies really resonating. Well. So anyway, so we we set out um, originally, uh, Tommy and I did, and we conducted a series of interviews with people from all around the U.S. And we, um, you know, we started discovering exactly what, you know, we started finding very common themes for people from these different areas. And themes so people, with non-belief? You no, know, non-belief, okay. of how they identify to others, um, you know, other things like their opinions of like religious believers and how they mm. interact with them, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how they interact with their families. And so, so then what, what we did was um, we uh, sort of did a did a mix of both grounded theory and then uh, sort of social constructionism with most people know not what And basically, we're trying to look at what is the shared reality. Mm. Initially, we set out to try to, to, to find what terms of identity did atheists oh. agree on, but we, that, that <laughs> fell miserably. I mean, because everyone had different, you know, depending on who they were reading. I mean, somebody's reading Sam Harris, oh. somebody's reading Dawkins. I mean, everybody had, they they used the terms, but the definitions were radical. Okay. But the sort of diamond in the rough here was when we when we sort of said, all right, we don't have agreement among the terms, we got into the definitions. Mm. And all of a sudden, just cleanly, these themes start emerging, mm. agreement. And so, and all of a sudden, we started finding that there are attitudinal behavioral dimensions um, that were common among different kinds, mm -hmm. including like how they saw the world and those kinds of things. So, um, Tommy and I, um, who's of course an editor on RSP, I believe, still, um, he and I then started dramatically pulling those together and sharpening them. And so, for a second study, we then started using various psychometrics like the Big Five and the RIF. Psychological well-being scale. Uh, we use the Roche Stockmanism scale, so broken close minded. Oh right. And um, and yeah, so when we we sort of gave all these measures, you know, we end up finding some, some decent effects between the different groups and significant differences in different mm -hmm. aspects. And, and so it was cool. And so we, uh, as we promised our participants, we you know we shared the results. Just this little goofy web page, so that they could see what their efforts were towards. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, um, one of the participants turned out was actually a journalist. Oh! And picked up our results. And the next thing you know, we we're on the Christian Post, CNN, and I mean, I, I'm just <laughs> no. like, I didn't know what to do. And we we had some wild stuff happen. Like, first of all. Some some folks misrepresented our work, but oh, I still no. appreciate the shout out. Yeah. Uh, like the Christian Post, for example, mm -hmm. their, their leading head was um, atheists might be sitting next to you in church. Oh, because one of our groups <laughs> that we found was this this what we call virtual atheist agnostics, which are uh -huh. which are basically they're atheists, but they still participate in right active non-believers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's been some since then. There's been evidence right. in the Netherlands and a few other right. places. That have found uh, similar patterns. Yeah. So. so, what was that? The name of that? If someone wanted to find that article, um, I think we. Let's see. What did we call it? Uh, atheists and non-belief. 
uh, six types of atheists and six types of something atheists. like that. Yeah, I'm a terrible scholar. I don't remember my own work, <laughs> but but yeah, it, it was in that, and, and and so it's been published. It's in um, and most appropriately, it's actually in uh, Psychology of Religion and Mental Health. Well, there you go. In so, that in that in that journal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and so um, and it's. That's a good international journal. Right. It's, not, it's not tier one, but they, they do some really great interdisciplinary work. And that's right. why um, we went for them uh-huh. versus some of the others because we wanted to, to sort of have a wider, a range, wider audience. Even though they may not as many readers, mm-hmm. they, they have great interdisciplinary mm-hmm. work and perfect. So, okay. Yeah. So what was the feedback that you got from that? Um, so, you know, we, we've had... Um, Interestingly enough, a lot of the secular community ended up really, and I mean secular in a broader sense. I mean, a lot of a lot of folks really said it felt like it resonated. It resonated with them. I got invited to the Center for Inquiry in Buffalo, New York, to present. I'm very humbled by that. Um, I've been invited to various universities uh, around oh, to great. sort of share some of the results, and and of course I always lead with the disclaimer that you know now this is this is just an attempt. It's not going to be perfect. I'm sure there's you you know amazing statisticians out there probably light years better cool stuff than I ever could. I mean, originally the goal that Tommy and I had was start a conversation, and the right. great thing is, well, Tom, and that's what it's done. And Tommy's gone on to do some really, really cool stuff in mm-hmm. atheism. He's written some very sort of powerful uh, pieces in terms of theory, which have been really good. So I'm incredibly proud of him for that. Mm-hmm. Also, I've got my, my graduate student now, which he just presented actually on concealment and disclosure. He just created a a non-belief concealment scale and has had just really robust um, results, regional differences, and got a really interesting, uh, I'll use the stats terms and put it in English, he's got a really interesting factor structure, which just means is that there's very clean uh, subscales that are there mm-hmm. uh, that can be used. So you can predict trends? Mm-hmm. It's all like an institutional kind of just, you know, concealment versus like a personal right, kind of concealment. Right. And so, warmly received sociologists, psychologists, uh, we've got some really good feedback, but also people were like, yes, this needed to happen. Great. So, I'm really proud of Cameron Mackey. I should mention. Thank you. Yes. I should mention his name because I'm very, very proud of him. Uh, this was a big day. He did a good job. Wonderful. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been, been very, very lucky. And so, great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that work will take on even more projects and things in the future so we'll look for okay so let's just shift a little bit now to your current work on yes. new, on the uh, new religious movements and the tension the cultural tension that's happening between religious belief and non-belief yes yeah um so for a long time um and i need to give a shout out to some other colleagues who have been working with um for about since 2000 I've been working with colleagues from Bielefeld, Germany, on um, on research. Originally started in the idea of faith development, but we've actually shifted to faith styles. Mm. Uh, we've got a number of uh, books as well as academic publications on the topic. Um, and so my shout out would be to Dr. Heinz Strive, who's at Bielefeld University, uh, Dr. Barbara Keller, who's at Bielefeld University. Um, let's see, uh, Ramona Bullock, who has been long time on the project as a project manager and she's currently working on her doctorate at Bielefeld. Um, and then of course, you know, I I uh 
was academically born and raised by Dr. Ralph Hood. Mm. Um, so I've been working with him since the early days. And so we've collaborated with Vila now for, mm. um, gosh, 18 years. Wow. That's half my life. <laughs> and so we've done some, we've, we've got, I've gotten to co-author a book with him. And you got to realize in my mind, I'm a nobody. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. <laughs> I really am. I, I, I'm not saying that like some kind of humble, you know, star. Now I really am a nobody. So, um, and we we did a book on spirituality, which multiple chapters, both quantitative and qualitative, some mm. mixed methods, design, um, and we're working on some. Uh, we've got we've got two more books in the works that we're working on right now, as well as a couple of manuscripts. But we're actually going to launch a longitudinal study of people's changes in their belief in faith. It's mm. really interesting, and, and we've actually. Been able to find some of the original participants from 18 years ago. Oh wow! And then we've also got some over the years that we're we're tracking now. So we're we're, we're we've uh, with generous funding from the, the Templeton Foundation, uh, uh, John Templeton Foundation. We're now actually going to do this long. We're going to actually do some pretty heavy duty okay. longitudinal mixed methods work, and ah. I'm sure you can appreciate how <laughs> how that's a massive logistical undertaking. Yes. Yeah. So that's all to say. Sorry, I had to build. I had to put the foundation here. Is that um, so? One of the things I've been looking at is um, uh, I've been interested in social tension and how ideology sort of signals group membership. Mm. Um, and so, and this is sort of a spinoff of uh, both Stride Keller and Hood's work, but it's not to say that it is their work. I want to make sure there's some clarity on that. Although I do have um, their support in terms of some of the data analysis mm-hmm. and things I've done thus far. But the, but the way the theory goes, and like I said, I have some preliminary findings already, is that if you think of, and I don't know how, you know, assume the audience is probably mostly academics, theologians, mm-hmm. social science researchers. Students. Students, yeah. I mean, if you think of, you know, if you sort of think of, a particular cultural context anywhere. It mm-hmm. could be Utah, it could be right. Tennessee, it could be New Zealand, I mean, you know, Africa. If you sort of accept for the fact that there's the sort of cultural norm of a particular tradition, which is like in the middle, and they're not really controversial or anything like that, but mm-hmm. they, they, everybody sort of knows this is the norm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've, actually, we've actually theorized um, that we call that group in our book and we borrow from David Bromley's work on uh, apostasy and sort of style of exit from back in the early 2000s. But we, we call that um, an integrated group, meaning like they're just culturally normative. There's virtually no social tension. And I'm setting all this up there. So you don't say crazy. So <laughs> that group is sort of, you know, it could be Methodist in Eastern Tennessee. It could be Mormons, Mormons in, Utah. in Utah. It's whoever's the norm in that uh-huh. geographic context. Mm-hmm. Then the more you're sort of moving away from the center, right, the bell curve, mm-hmm. and you start getting out into sort of like the, you know, maybe, you know, say, first year center deviation. But, you know, bottom line is we're starting to move away from normative, right? Mm-hmm. You get in that sort of middle area. We call those accommodating. It means they still participate in society, mm-hmm. but there may be certain behaviors, rituals, attitudes, beliefs, something that still makes them stand out just enough to create cultural tension. But they still attempt to participate. So, um, you know, so if you think of like, um, well, you know, you think of like being, say, Mormon in 
you know, you know, out in Southern Georgia or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you, you go to church on Sunday like everybody else, but you have this additional theology that they go, you know, a little, like actually a little suspect. Like in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is where I'm from, an example of that would actually be like uh, the Seventh-day Adventists. Ah. They're actually pretty common because right. they've got a university there, right. and they've got multiple Seventh-day Adventist churches. But in their mind, they think that they that others, of course, are judging them for being a little different. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are, sometimes I mean, they aren't. Yeah. But you know, but that would be like an accommodating group. And then, and this is to your question, there's what we call opposition groups, which uh, Bromley called subversives. These are groups that they just they have no real interest in participating in the larger culture. They some cases make their own microculture mm. so that they sustain it themselves and they try not to participate. As much as possible. Um, an example I would use is um, in Chattanooga. We have this group called the Twelve Tribes. They started there, uh, and they're a new religious movement. Uh, I don't like the term cult because it now carries. You know, while in the '60s it was a sociological term, it right. now carries this media stigma. Right. And quite frankly, there's just some incredibly wonderful people that that I've gotten to know in that tradition. But yeah, their beliefs are very much different from mm. others, and mm-hmm. so. So they have, it does, you know, oppositional doesn't mean that there's something bad about them. It just means they cleanly stand out from the culture. From the, from the norm. So the way, so my modification of where I'm going with this theory is, is that I, I believe that much like a bell curve, the more you get out in the tails, the more distance there is between numbers, right, mm-hmm. positions. I actually argue that, you know, the more a group differs from the norm, the more social tension there is, and therefore, the more likely there's going to be intergroup prejudice. Oh, this interesting. Is, this is my argument. And so, um, within both groups? Within, yeah, well, then, yeah, because you think about it. So, if you think of the bell curve and the means right in the middle, mm-hmm. one side would be like, um, relig- you know, so religious and spiritual groups, right? That are heteronormative, everyone accepts they're part of the culture, you know. I mean, yeah, you get a weirdo every now and then, but most everybody's, mm-hmm. you know, pretty cool. But then you start moving out, mm-hmm. and you start getting into not only more fundamentalism and more sort of, uh, you think about like institutional, structural authoritarianism, right. rigidity, how, mm-hmm. depending on which discipline you're in, sociology, psychology, uses <laughs> different terms. <laughs> but, you know, the more you're moving out to the tails, a, the more protective you are of your group, and you're looking for any uh, signal, be it verbal, behavioral, but you're trying to look for authenticity of who's in your group versus those that are outside, right? And so the more you're out this way, the the more prejudice you're going to be of the norm. But here's the thing. From the norm's perspective, the more prejudice you're going to be of the outside. Right. Now, that's only one side of the bell curve. Uh-huh. So then think about the other side of the bell curve. This is where we get into spiritual. Mm-hmm. So folks that are spiritual, not religious, uh-huh. they might kind of half identify with something, but it's moving into a more individualized belief system as opposed to more structural. Right. So, you know, but then as you're moving out, you start getting into, you know, non-affiliated and religious nuns uh-huh. and then agnosticism and then atheism. Here's the beauty of it. It's like bell curve collapse one side on the other, in theory, the tension should be the same, mm-hmm. the behaviors will be the same, the attitudinal dimensions and rigidity should be 
Yeah. And I've got. Oh, that's you know, fascinating. As for my six types data, we already know that anti-theists uh-huh. are just as dogmatic as, as fundamentalists. Right. <laughs> so the point is, we've already got we've already got some some um, some evidence of this, and I say we, I mean me. Um, and this is, of course, where I deviate from my colleagues. So I hope this doesn't create confusion that they're doing this too. I've, they've been very kind of giving me some of their data. But mm. what's interesting is I will get a shout out to Dr. Stride that he has this measure called the religious style scale. Mm. It predicts these categories really well. And what's funny is he didn't make the scale with this intention. Oh, really? No. It just, but it fits perfectly. Yeah. So we did, uh, I'll give the stats term and then I'll translate in English. So what I did is I did binomial regression, mm. which allows us to predict group identity, right? By binomial. So essentially you're, you're predicting nominal identity and you're looking to see like are there certain measures that contribute to the variance of that prediction right so it doesn't measure predict the group in english mm-hmm. sure enough uh, at least for the integrated accommodating groups it's 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 right. good and it's strong and we've got high betas and so there's definitely some interesting potential there so one of the things i'm going to speak about tomorrow is is that I'm, I actually think that the opposition should be the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. we've already got some clean evidence. We've already got um, somewhat related evidence in some of these other studies that not just me, but some much more brilliant people like Potter, mm. uh, Lois Lee, um, you know, uh, Ryan Craig, and definitely mm. uh, on the sort of atheism side. And mm-hmm. then even on the, the new religious movement side, you look at uh, Gordon Milton, again, Bromley, uh, Shout out to Lauren Dawson, who was one of my professors when I was at Wilbur Boyer University mm-hmm. a long time ago. They've got some really interesting stuff that does seem to parallel what I'm suggesting. And so, yeah. well, it sounds like you've got a lot of really good theoretical lens, a, a good foundation there, some really good we'll base that you can knock on class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. But um, um, again, the problem with the I mean, the problem I have is, is there's so many more brilliant people out in the world, but I still feel compelled to study it. So mm-hmm. what I always try to do is work with. I try to never do this just me. I just mm-hmm. try to collaborate with good people because that way they can help me red flag. And I'm, I'm also in, so I'm completing a doctorate in social psychology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And I'm working with a wonderful advisor by the name of Dr. Michael Olson, who does dual process theory research, which is cognitive. Sort oh, of. right. And um, what I like about what I'm sort of working on here is, is that it taps into something. So mm-hmm. like there's this sort of, you know, you think about it social terms, you know, like when somebody's so radically different than you, you know, you could have these sort of, you know, feelings of disgust for somebody mm-hmm. so radically different, uh, you know, not to mention anxiety, prejudice, anger, sadness. Mm-hmm. And so interestingly enough, my Current dissertation, and um, as soon as I get it proposed and can start collecting mm-hmm. data, which is almost done, uh, the proposal anyway, uh, is to actually study um, high status individuals like Christians, mainly integrated Christians, who believe they're stigmatized. Ah, so yeah. That, that sort that, of post Trump era. Right, right. We've seen some of it, and and, but it's been around for a while. I right? have. This right. theory, but, and I want to look and see if. You know, do we see the same kinds of psychological patterns for someone who is high status and who's enjoyed 
privilege to use this sort of liberal mm-hmm. term. And by high status, you mean like someone who's in the norm, who's already experiencing That's right. They're some, in the norm. some sense enjoyed, of privilege. They've enjoyed the pri- they've okay. enjoyed privilege, but then at the same time, for whatever reason, um, they feel like they've been discriminated against. Right. But mainly, the big thing is is that. Um, if they lose status, mm-hmm. will they self-report feeling stigmatized? Right. Right. And so we we have a, an experiment where we actually tell them they're losing status mm-hmm. versus a condition where we say they're not. And Fair. kind of see what the mm-hmm. reaction is. Yep, yep, yep. So we'll see. Do you, I know there are some groups who use persecution and loss of status as a kind of a confirmation yeah. of themselves. Is that the kind That's of thing? Kind that... of the, yeah, it's interesting, but we're also going to look at white males too. Mm-hmm. So that way we're not just making it about religion. We're going to see if, like, do white males believe? Mm. And again, there's there's some at least preliminary correlational data that seems to indicate that some people feel this right. way. It's not to say everyone right. who's Christian feels that way, or right. every male, but but if they're, you know, and, and I should also mention, because I'm an Appalachian kid, so I'm from the country. Mm. I'm sure you can't tell by my accent <laughs> at all. No. Um, but, you know, the other side of it is, is that, you know, you think about those who've grown up in Appalachia, in extreme poverty, and they're being told they have privilege. And so uh, that creates a certain interesting level of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how would the person who's grown up in that environment, how would they respond to sort of diversity initiatives you know, and, and what is that there? And it's not a judgment I'm making. I'm just saying right. from a psychological perspective, what, what does that look what, like? Socially? Yeah. And what does that mean out in society? Absolutely. And so, you know, when you have a, a West Virginia coal miner who's supporting Trump, you know, who's like, we're going to bring coal back and we're going to do, all, you, you know, you know, it's because I think in some ways, and I think I can say this with some certainty from my own anecdotal experience, is that, they feel like they've not been a part of the national narrative for right. You know, they haven't been part of that norm. They haven't had that status. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, if we define privilege in terms of things like seeing themselves on TV, mm-hmm. absolutely, privilege right. definition works. But if we talk about it in terms of opportunities for employment, right. opportunities for resources, power to make change, education access, in many respects, I see very similar patterns with my students, my mm-hmm. undergrads at least. Those who are first-generation college students from Appalachia, and then right. some urban folks. Now, the urban folks probably come from more adverse kinds of mm-hmm. challenges. But, but my point is, uh, I gave a diversity talk one day at our university about dual process theory. Thank you, Dr. Olson. <laughs> and what was fascinating was was um, I made this similar argument. Would you believe after I gave the talk, I had a number of folks. And we're sort of the minority advocates and wait for it, conservative, including some police, all come up and say they agree with you. Wow. Radical positions that were like, yeah, what you said makes complete it really sense. Resonated and with what them. was crazy was remember this is post Trump. They were talking amongst themselves about how they agree about the social economic inequity. Mm. And that is what brought them together. Mm. And they actually had a constructive conversation. I almost cried. Yeah. Because, I mean, you think about the... Well, and that's what I was wondering about this polarization, that there is such a big divide, that is there a place for that type of coming together? Yeah, and and I think we're... I'm totally 
going to Chris Silver and going down a rabbit hole. I'm sorry. But uh, I think we're at an interesting moment in human history because for the first time, not only do we have access to any information we ever wanted, mm. we're highly diverse. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we interact with far more people than any of our ancestors ever did. Um, so there's interesting both social, cognitive, evolutionary. Uh, on all, every level. Yeah, yeah. So we're at a weird nexus in mm -hmm. human history. And I think for some of us, we've moved too fast. And I think some of the things that you're seeing is, is that they, A, felt not they have a voice, but also think they have to adjust to all the change. Right. And in many respects, some changes need to happen. So mm -hmm. they come into change. But then at the same time, um, I think a lot of us, the uncertainty and the fear that we have about change is also driving some of our close-minded attitudes. And I'd say this from not just the right, but also the also, guy on the left. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting time. It's a it really is. interesting time. So um, I had that, so cultural tension for me, so I'm going to circle back around. Mm -hmm. Cultural tension for me is a really interesting aspect. And, I, you know, that to me, how we signal to others our group membership it's no longer about discourse. It's about tribalism. Ah, oh. wow. Sorry, I just well, well, look forward to it. Just, mind, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fascinating stuff here. Yeah, I really look forward to reading more of your work. <sighs> and best of luck with your dissertation. Thank you. And yeah. your continued success with six types of atheism. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do next. I'd, I'd like to, at some point, talk to more intelligent people. <laughs> Might buy. Ryan Craig in a beer. There you uh, go. Chris Cotter in a beer. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for joining us. No, thank you again. And again, shout out to all my old buddies at the Religious Studies Project. Thank you, guys. Wonderful to hear from Chris Silver. Again, a longtime pal of the project from way back, one of our first uh, the first people who came to help Chris and I, um, and also good to hear from Chris Black, both color surnames. I just realized that's, uh, wow. Yeah. The, the color Chris is, and that's what we'll call them from now on. I'll let them know that they have to record exclusively together from now on. Next week, there's another Chris. Yes. It's this guy. It's me. Cotter yeah. isn't a color, unfortunately. Uh, oh, we could make it into one. Um, yeah, I spoke with uh, Vila Huskafel, or Huskafel, of the University of Helsinki, about mindfulness, uh, which is a topic that I don't think has come up at all. I mean, it might have come up in passing in, in mm. the odd interview. Mm. Um, so we take on the topic, and he, he gives a nice sort of critical RS approach to, to the discourse surrounding the term and this history of Indeed. it. And yeah, it's, it's good. I will be interested to hear that one. Um, and, uh, yeah, nice to have you interviewing again. Again, that's it. I, uh, do we have any... Any news for the listeners this week? I, I mean, I don't know. Have we mentioned the fact that we've now had 700,000 downloads? Uh, probably over that now. We're, mm. that's, we are close to three quarters of a million downloads. That's not page hits. That's downloads of podcasts. So thanks to all of you. It's, uh, very exciting to see. Well, it's rewarding to see it being used, which was what we always wanted it, it to be. Um, and, uh, I'll just not tell David that it's just been me sitting. I get up every morning and download 10 podcasts <laughs> every day. 
I wondered why there was these stacks of hard drives in your flat, and now I know. <laughs> um, so come back for the chat with Vila next week, and um, thanks for listening. Thanks. thanks. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.